Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to the first of our 2021 Wimbledon Relived editions, where today we're going to take you back to 1973, uh, a time when David Law was somewhere in between Eye Twinkle and uh, enormous presence in the world. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. I, I was uh, born oh, a couple of months after the the Wimbledon that we're going to discuss. Mm, yes. Were you a big baby, David? <laughs> was I a big baby? I was I was normal sized, I think, as, as it goes. And in fact, that sort of stayed the same until I was about 17. And then things got ridiculous. And I don't quite know. <laughs> they describe why it took me so long. babies as long rather than tall, don't they? I remember they? In, in, the, in the early days of the um, Ricky Gervais XFM podcast, uh, Carl Pilkington is quizzing Stephen Merchant on whether he was a tall baby. <laughs> were, you, were you a tall baby? <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Merchant, you've given birth to a basketball player. Yes. My, my feet were commented on. I know mm. that. Yes. Immediately on birth. So it's 1973, which um, many, most, some of you might instantly recognise as the Wimbledon boycott year. Um, it's also the year that Billie Jean King won the second of her triple crowns, the singles, doubles and mixed doubles title, which is extraordinary in itself. But uh, we've we've picked 1973 because it is the boycott year. The year the title was won by Jan Kodesh on the men's side. Uh, we'll do a little scene set for you, shall we? Now, now that you know David Law's status in the world, obviously Matt and I were were irrelevances uh, at this point. So we'll tell you what the rest of the world was up to in 1973. Um, what was Bruce Springsteen up to in 1973, Matt? This is the in- important point. He was just getting started in 1973. Yeah, his his debut album, Greetings from Asbury Park, was released mm. that year. Big year, big year. Mm. I, I Yeah, Law and Springsteen unleashed onto the world in one year. <laughs> What a thought. One of um, those is good. 
Richard Nixon was sworn in for a second term. Didn't go brilliantly. That did it. Uh, the Watergate scandal was uh, was a happening. Um, uh, uh, I listened to a very interesting podcast on that recently. Fascinating. Um, Roe versus Wade. Um, happened in 1973. That was the US Supreme Court overturning the state ban on abortion. Uh, Pablo Picasso died. That's far more recently than I think of. Yes. Um, and of course, it was the year of the Battle of the Sexes that that Billie Jean King won. Um, you know, it was a time of much turbulence in tennis on lots of different fronts very little of the podcast today is going to focus on Billie Jean King Battle of the Sexes the formation of the WTA it'll be sort of mentioned tangentially but but that was all happening <laughs> while the really, while the it? men were also doing their thing yeah it's this strange time of as you said turmoil but also expansion because tennis has become open a few years earlier and there's all these conflicting tours and interests and it's it's growing massively but there's just huge politics in the way of it all except that there was a headline in the new york <laughs> times in 19 in 1973 in january 1973 uh stating this may be the year for tennis without politics <laughs> in in takes that haven't aged well news yes. what were they basing that on <laughs> <laughs> I think it was this idea that, you know, Chris Everett was coming through and Stan Smith was was exciting and finally the battles were going to be played out on the court. Yes, it's it's very much the equivalent of that awful Boris Johnson tweet at the start of 2020 that, with his thumbs up. This is going to be a great year for the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> oh, it's a good job he's, he's never fallen into that trap again since. Um, yeah. Frank Keating in The Guardian uh, describes the ATP boycott thus. He said, The players' revolt split tennis asunder, shriveled 1973's Wimbledon Championship to a half-baked botch and kick-started a dramatic overturn in the century-long balance of power between the administrators and administered of any major worldwide sport. It was an us-versus-them conflict of the newly formed union of male pro tennis players versus traditional tennis authorities such as the ITF, which had been simmering for years and finally boiled over. He's a heck of a writer, by the way, Frank Keating, one of the greats. And and uh, we'll, we'll put a link in our show notes to that piece that Matt's um, unearthed there because it's it just takes you on a journey. You feel like you're part of 1973 when you read it. Half-baked botch is yeah. uh, a turn of phrase I'll be adopting and feel I will have frequent use for somehow. <laughs> um, so we're going to set the scene for you. We're, we're going to be hearing from... I mean, well, Billie Jean King, for starters, spoiler alert, but uh, Richard Evans as well, Cliff Drysdale. Um, we've spoken to a lot of people for this podcast and, uh, yeah, the audio that we've got is sensational. And we also have two fantastic guest editors uh, for this show, John and Leah, uh, who've been friends of the podcast for a long time. We've met them at a couple of our live shows Um and honestly, um, I'm sure I'll mention it again, but their their research 
and contributions have really helped make this show what it is. So thank you, John and Leah. We hope that we've we've done we've done those we've done those thoughts justice uh, with this show. But we'll set the scene for you before we bring in our esteemed voices. Um, in tennis terms, the the top players in the world at that time were Rod Laver, Arthur Ashe, Elena Stasi, Stan Smith. Ken Rosewall, John Newcomb, Adriana Panatta, this is in the men's side, obviously. The defending Wimbledon champion was Stan Smith. He had won it in 1972. And P.S. 1972 was actually a depleted field on the men's side as well. Um, More of that in a moment. John Newcomb had won it uh, the two previous years, 1970 and 71. Um, So what happened in 1973 is that basically the open era has come in, but it hasn't sort of been fully formed, and it, it, it's like it's like all the pieces have been thrown up in the air, and people are grabbing at them. It's like in in the dome, the crystal dome at the end of the crystal maze, when people are grabbing at silver and gold. Uh, pieces of paper it kind of feels a little bit like that so in 1973 the situation that you had was the season was completely split in two the first half through until may was one run by world championship tennis wct and the second half was the grand prix which was administered by the itf or the itlf as it was and the grand prix included the four grand slams um john barrett said Um, of this situation inevitably in a sport that had just drifted into a new situation without forethought or planning there were clashes of interest between the various factions i'll say gosh that's not the tennis i know sport drifting in a new situation without forethought or planning the one thing that strikes me when you're describing that setup is that it makes today seem incredibly organised. <laughs> you know, we're all just talking about the fragmented nature of tennis, and yet you you see the way it was. I don't know how they got by when I when I hear how all of it was set up back then. Yeah, I mean, it, but that's the thing, isn't it? What what John Barrett's describing there is the situation where sort of individual pieces move and nobody's ever moving the whole chessboard at the same time and thinking about mm. the the bigger picture. Um, and, you know, we're 48 years later now and uh, the situation, situation remains. Um, so that agreement had arisen... Um, because of what happened in the two preceding years when World Championship Tennis men, so the players that had signed up to play World Championship Tennis, they hadn't entered the French Open, the French Championships of 1971. So not a boycott, but just a sort of informal, we're going to be prioritising this other professional tennis that we're earning more money for over the French Open. Um And that situation convinced the tennis establishment that they had to act. And they retaliated by banning all contract professionals. So everybody playing World Championship Tennis, um, they they banned them from official ITF tournaments. Um, Eventually, an agreement was reached, but it came too late um, to 
to secure the involvement of any of those players in the French Open or Wimbledon in 1972. So actually, you had severely depleted fields um, at, the, at those two tournaments in the year prior to the boycott year. Um, so Wimbledon 1972, there was no Laver, there was no Ro- Rosewell, no Arthur Ashe, no John Newcomb. Uh, Cliff Drysdale, who we'll be hearing from uh, a lot in this podcast, he uh, was a professional player at the time. He's obviously become a broadcaster um, and he was the first president of the ATP uh, that had been formed in the back end of 1972. He said, we as players felt we were in the middle of two competing forces and had no say. Mm-hmm. Familiar? <laughs> And I think the other important thing to understand about tennis at the time, as well as this this splintered situation with the World Championship Tennis Tour and, and the ITF events, the other thing is that players were under the control of their national federations. Mm. If they wanted to play a Grand Slam or they wanted to compete in the Davis Cup, which was a still a huge event back in those days, they had to be on good terms with their national federation. There, there wasn't an official computerized ranking system that got you into an event. You got into an event because you were picked to play the event by your national federations. Steve Tigner, the the very good tennis writer, uses a military analogy to describe this situation. And he says that players served as unpaid foot soldiers for their nations. So if they didn't follow their orders, they didn't play. And that's very, very significant for the Wimbledon boycott in 1973 because we'll hear a lot more detail but that event that basically arose because Nikki Pilic from the former Yugoslavia decided to play in a professional tournament in Montreal rather than a Yugoslav Davis Cup tie against New Zealand that's the crux of the issue that we've got here it's amazing that they went into the open era without a proper ranking system Agreed, mm. isn't it? You sort of think of open era as like, right, that's when everything got sorted. They decided how things should be. And from that moment forward, it was all, you know, organised. Um, but that, that simply wasn't the case. You know, five years later, there's no flipping ranking system. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, you know, certainly nothing that was as we understand it now, nothing computerised, nothing even really organised. There was no entry system to get into tournaments, as you say. It was really on the whim of a national federation or a tournament director, an entrepreneur who decided somebody was an attractive player to have in their field. So they stuck them in. Um, and, and this before... is this is at a sorry, David. This is at a you know we're in the depths of the Cold War here. So to mm. for, so for players to be at the whim of federations which in many cases were extensions of of government um would be a very precarious place for an athlete given that a lot of athletes saw that career path as an escape um from the the regimes that they lived under I, that's you know very precarious place to be yeah absolutely and um you, you may sometimes think, well, somebody was regarded as world number one before 1973. So how how did you get to that if you didn't have an official ranking system? Well, I, I read up on this. And, and if you ever look at the profiles on Wikipedia of players like Roy Emerson, it will say highest ranking number one in brackets Lance Tingay. 
Now, if you look up Lance Tingay, he is a British journalist who worked for the Daily Telegraph in the 1950s to the 1980s. So he was the Daily Telegraph's tennis correspondent for 30 years. He was Briggs. He was the early Briggs. Briggs needs this, <laughs> needs this kind of power. Um, so at the end of the year, he used to come up with his definitive list of who the players were ranked as, who, who was one to whatever. And that's what people went by in terms of ranking players. Um, just just one person's view who travelled the world and, and covered the sport in great depth. And um, I mean, it's extraordinary to think, isn't Imagine it? Imagine if Briggs was just deciding what the rankings were. I mean, yes, please, actually, let's start a campaign for that to be the case. The check me out rankings. Um, but um, the, the, the early ATV rankings... Were, were produced in association. I was reading this from an article by James Bedell on the ATB website. Um, he, it's a really good read about the origins of it and how they they employed a, a representative from an aerospace company to come up with the the system in order to decide the rankings. And they'd they'd just have reams of printed paper up and down the the walls and on the ceiling in order to to properly chronicle who was where and what tournaments counted and what results they'd had i mean amazing really how how easy it is now by comparison and, and you know they only published it once a month because it took so long to do i, I mean <laughs> the mind boggles um well i i i think of the nikki pillich moment situation as the the shooting of franz ferdinand equivalent in in this tale um, because it wasn't really about that. It, it could have been something else that triggered this all coming to a head. But it just so happened to be what Nicky Pillich decided to do, as, as you say. Um, <clears throat> he was from the former Yugoslavia. And uh, yeah, he decided to play a professional tournament uh, rather than a Yugoslav Davis Cup tie against New Zealand. My favourite little, <laughs> little aside to this story is that the Yugoslav Federation didn't kick off straight away once he made that decision. They only kicked off once they lost the tie, 3-2. <laughs> so if, if one rubber in that tie had gone differently, then who knows what would happen that year or in tennis. As I say, it felt like it was coming to a head somehow. But yeah, at first they were like, okay, let's do it. We're, we're okay with that provided we win. And then they didn't win. And uh, it all kicked off. And they decided to blame the whole loss on Nicky Pillich. And they decided to suspend him for the rest of the year. Um, and at this point, it's probably a good time to bring in Richard Evans, who, I mean, is just the most wonderful historian of the sport um, and remembers this period vividly. And David and I were so lucky to get to pick his brains about it all. These are Richard Evans' takes on the, the full background and context um, of the 1973 Wimbledon boycott. Well, you have to go back to 1968 when Herman David decided enough was enough. And he wanted to run the best tournament in the world. So he defied the ITF and all the meetings that have been taking place and said, next year, Wimbledon's going to be open. And uh, because Wimbledon was so powerful in those days, it, it, it carried so much weight 
the rest of the world had no option. Overnight, open tennis had arrived. The first tournament was at Bournemouth and Wimbledon 68 was open. Then the wars started. There was the Lamar Hunt WCT. There was George McCall with his pro group. There was the amateur game trying desperately to hang on to their players. And the whole thing for between 68 and 72 was pretty chaotic. Um, thankfully, some people who really knew what they were doing and who worked endlessly all over the world, Jack Kramer and Donald Dell, had tried to get some cohesion going. And during that time, the, the idea of a Grand Prix, which has now developed into the ATP Tour, um, was happening and being formed with tournaments that existed and some new ones coming in. But nothing was going to happen until there would be a proper players association. One was tried. Charlie Passerell and John Newcomb sat around a nightclub in Rome. And on the third whiskey, they said, you know, really, we've got to do something about this. It's farcical. We're being, our game is being run by amateur officials and we are the players and we have no say. Eventually it happened. Donald Dell got everybody together in Caesar's Palace during that tournament. And finally, in 1972 at the US Open, the ATP was formed, the Association of Tennis Professionals. Jack Kramer was persuaded to be the CEO. So immediately it had gravitas and carried weight because Jack had run the professional tour for years and was Wimbledon champion, huge figure. Okay, so we, we approach Wimbledon 1973. There's a lot of resentment in the locker room about the amateur stranglehold on what should be by then a professional sport. And, um, of course, conflicts arose. And Yugoslavia had a Davis Cup tie, and they wanted Nicky Pilic, their number one player, to play in it. He sort of said he would, but with a lot of provisos, I saw the letter they wrote to Cliff Drysdale. We sat in the Holiday Inn in Rome and went through this, trying to work out the legalities. And he'd sort of said, yes, he tried to play, but if he had professional obligations, that word that they hated, professional. I mean, you have no idea how much the amateur establishment hated that word professional because it threatened them. And he said, I have professional obligations because I'm partnering Alan Stone and the WCT doubles finals in Montreal. Or Montreal and if that clashes, I, I'm a professional. I have to go and play the doubles. And uh, that happened. There was a clash. And the president who, of the Yugoslav Federation, who I think was um, Nicky's uncle, banned him. And all hell broke loose. And uh, he was going to be banned originally for months. And Alan Heyman, who was the very smart, one thought, lawyer, president of the ITF, got involved in the negotiations and said, um, no, no, we'll, we'll redu reduce the sentence. Um, it'll be six weeks, which carried it right into Wimbledon. So suddenly Nicky Pillage was going to be banned from playing Wimbledon. And the, the ITF thought they were very clever because one of their officials said to Dennis Ralston around that time, you guys will boycott any tournament in the world but you'll never boycott Wimbledon. Really? 
Okay, so Cliff Drysdale and a few of the others got to work in the locker room in Rome, and then it moved on to Paris, and there was militancy everywhere. The players were fed to the teeth. Nicky Pillage wasn't one of the most popular players. He, he was a very strange uh, sort of guy with a funny sense of humor, very arrogant. But it was the principle. It was the idea that uh, amateur officials could tell a professional player where he could or couldn't play. And by the time the whole tour moved to Nottingham and then down to Queens and, and Wimbledon, there was a growing feeling that this was the moment that something had to be done, a statement had to be made. And so meetings started in the bowels of the Westbury Hotel in, in Mayfair with the new, brand-new, nine-month-old ATP headed by Jack Kramer, Cliff Drysdale as president, Arthur Ashe, Izzy El Shafi, Mark Cox, John Barrett. That was the core of the group, Stan Smith. And they started meeting. What do we do? Do we boycott? If they won't let Pillage play, do we boycott? And it became a huge story. I mean, it was front page news on every newspaper in Britain. And the media got it completely wrong. There were about three of us who understood what was going on, David Gray, Rex Bellamy, and myself. And the rest took the obvious line. Wimbledon was untouchable to the British public. You couldn't criticize Wimbledon. So there had to be a villain. And they looked around for villains. Uh, Ken Rosewell, Rod Laver, John Newcomb. These were superstars. These were lovely guys. Arthur Ashe, villain? No, didn't work. So who was going to be the villain? Jack Kramer, the cigar-smoking American who'd come over here. He was very famous in, in England as well uh, because he formed this wonderful partnership on BBC television with Dan Maskell. So the commentary at Wimbledon for years had been Dan Maskell and Jack Kramer. But suddenly he was the only possible villain for the British media. And my paper, the Evening News, to my horror, came out with a front page headline, Go Home Kramer, We Don't Want Your Type Over Here. And they made it all about greedy players wanting more money. Nobody mentioned money. The players never mentioned money. It was all about control. And the amateur establishment knew, because they weren't that stupid, that if the players got a real foothold in the running of the game, their influence would be reduced and they wouldn't be able to lord it and Basil Ray, wouldn't, the secretary, wouldn't be able to strut around Queens in his pompous manner and tell Arthur Ashe and Mark Cox to get off court, your time's up. Well, that's how they were treated. That's how players were treated. And the players had said enough. And so there was a meeting, there was a vote in the Westbury. They voted to boycott and they all thought, oh, my God, what have we done? I mean, it had gone as far as Cliff Drysdale going to see the Minister of Sport in Westminster. Eldon Griffiths was a former Newsweek columnist. And he was at the time, he, he was Minister of Sport. And it, it had reached that level. This was drama big time, engulfing the whole interest of, of the sporting world and beyond. Would the players boycott Wimbledon? And they came back the next day. There was huge reservations on the board. Mark Cox was British. He felt 
can I boycott John Barrett was representing Slazengers at Wimbledon and he was John Barrett, one of the establishment figures. And they came back and they voted again, but it came down to an even vote. And Cliff Drysdale had to cast the deciding vote. And if it remained as it was, it was boycott. But Cliff could have switched it either way. And he abstained. And Jack Kramer afterwards said, I fell off my chair. I couldn't believe he was such a politician. And so with the abstention from Cliff Drysdale, the president, it was the vote to boycott. And this, we're now talking Friday before Wimbledon. And they drew up a list and sent, it, it's always been contentious. I, I think it was about nearly 90 players came out of the draw. So they had to redo the draw. Uh, there were uh, only people who were members of the ATP. Well, was, was Ilya Nastasi a member? I don't think he could be. But anyway, he elected to play. Roger Taylor was in a terrible situation. He was the British number one. He was an ATP member. He knew that if he played, he had a huge chance of winning Wimbledon. But his father was a union steel worker in Sheffield. And his father, unlike the rest of the country, was saying, you can't, you can't break ranks, son. Um, you're, you're a member of a union. And Roger was torn every which way. He elected to play and eventually lost in the semifinals. But anyway, and there was an Australian called Ray Keldy, who was a strange character. And he said, I can't afford not to play. And everybody said, yeah, yeah, mate. Yeah, really. Um, we'll buy you a cheeseburger. Uh, anyway, those three players, Nastasi, Taylor and Keldy, broke ranks and played. But the rest of them, and my God, there were some big heroes because players like Adriano Panatta um, and Paolo Bertolucci from Italy and Manolo Arantes from Spain were under huge pressure from their federations. And their careers were very, this was the problem, their careers were, were tied to their federations. And there was a huge amount of stuff going on. The Gloucester Hotel had hit the jackpot. It was a brand new hotel. They decided to make a gesture and give free rooms to the Wimbledon players because they wanted a little bit of publicity. A little bit of publicity. Their lobby was the center of the universe for three days. CBS News, NBC News, BBC, they were all in the lobby of the Gloucester Hotel interviewing players. So, they, I mean, they, they just hit the jackpot. Anyway, um, it happened. And uh, the, the Wimbledon boycott took place. The players got absolutely hammered in the British press. Um, but uh, they knew what they were doing, and Alan Heyman didn't. Alan Heyman made a huge mistake. And uh, as a result of the boycott, the pro council was formed. The players had three seats. The ITF, ITF had three. Tournament directors had three. Donald Dell wrote the rules and the game changed forever. Well, how about that? I feel like anything we, <laughs> anything we attempt to add to that is going to be a disappointment. We didn't edit that. That wasn't several answers. That was one question and one answer. <laughs> <laughs> His recall yeah. is mind-blowing. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, 
we're just going to stay on the background for a moment um and not even pretend that we can uh we can add anything better than what our what our contributors can let's hear from cliff drysdale who david spoke to a number of years ago actually but it it remains timeless and and very relevant obviously cliff was a a major player in the whole situation. He was the president of the the newly formed ATP. So here's his take on the situation that Richard described. WCT was beginning to become a real factor in tennis. Grand slams and the ITF were at, at war for the most part with the new professional game. And the players were sort of stuck in the middle, and we felt at a certain time that we wanted to enjoy some independence and have a voice, which we did not have at all. So that's what started it, and I was in the middle of it because I was playing. I was Those were my years for playing, the 60s and 70s. And uh, so I became the first president of the ATP, and at that point... Uh, very simply the International Tennis Federation had the feeling that it was losing some power because of this new horrible thing called professional tennis so its effort to maintain power was to tell the players that they had to be bound by ITF rules about where and when they could play it was not acceptable to us players it was it was a position that they took that that they really could not sustain. Uh, but Wimbledon, for better or for worse, in that year, uh, decided that they they wanted to side with the ITF. Uh, I thought it was a bad decision, um, and uh, that was that was really the crux of the matter. And after that, there was never any question about it anymore. That never came up because it was really it was an untenable position from them. That must have been quite a challenging position to be put in though that you have a, a strong view as, a, as players and you as the spearhead of that and, they, and yet you've got a tournament of the size of Wimbledon just at that point not prepared to budge that, that must have been quite, quite disconcerting in a way quite, quite a precarious feeling but you must, have, you must have felt very strongly in order to, to continue under those circumstances you know, um, the answer is yes, and and it was you don't do stuff like that lightly. Nobody, uh, it, it it was it was still the biggest was then and still is the, you know, the number one tournament in the world. So to walk out on it and take that kind of position was was a huge deal, but the cause was so on our side. I mean, it's it's hard to explain to somebody who, who wasn't there and who doesn't really understand. Because it sounds like you know there are these organisations that were trying to do things that uh, might have been normal. They were definitely not normal. I mean, the idea, the idea that the International Tennis Federation could say to a national association, in those days, my national association would have been the South African Lawn Tennis Association, and that uh, they, the South African Lawn Tennis, had to give me permission to travel outside of South Africa to play tennis. The Australians were caught up in that. They had to stay after the Australian Nationals before professional tennis and play exhibition matches all around Australia. Well, that wasn't acceptable to professional tennis players. 
I mean, it was insane. It, uh, it's not an argument that anybody would even begin to make now. So the, that's the long answer. The short answer is that our position was so right that there really wasn't anything else to do. Were we going to go back under those controls? No way. So when, I mean, I understand at the time, because it was Wimbledon as well, the British press were, were rallying behind them. How did you deal with that situation of, obviously, you know, it's, it's difficult to get your point across publicly, I suppose, if Wimbledon have got a lot of, a lot of media behind them? Wimbledon have done so many things right that uh, in, in the history of tennis. 99% of them, that was the 1% that was wrong. Um, and again, it was not a question. Uh, first of all, the British media were very, were very kind to me. They were very, they were very um, personally. I mean, I, I think that they knew that we had a position, that we believed in it, and they didn't agree with it. It's hard to, it's hard to disagree with Wimbledon when you're in, in London and the tournament's about to start the next day. But I don't think uh, there wasn't anybody that ever took anything personally against me. They were they, they targeted more. Jack Kramer, I think, who was who was an executive director. I was the president, but it wasn't hard. It, it, it wasn't hard. It was it was such a good cause. It was so logical, and uh, it was borne out by events the week after Wimbledon. It was never the same the week after Wimbledon. So it was a waste. With that in mind, that must give you great satisfaction to look back on and pride that that you took a stand and that it was ultimately accepted. I never had any doubt about it, to be honest with you, David. So. Uh, pride I suppose but uh, it never occurred to me that this wasn't going to work out in our favour ultimately and we, I looked at Wimbledon as if to say gee I just, I'm, sh- I'm sure you don't realise what's it, uh, really what's at stake here and it's just not worth doing what you're doing but if, if that's the way it's going to go then that's the way it's going to go um, again as I said 99% of what Wimbledon has done in terms of open tennis and promoting open tennis and doing the things that they've done have been, have been spot on Wimbledon particularly in, in that case made a mistake and uh, I have absolutely no hard feelings. I, I, look, I look back in those days with some pride actually. Wow. <clears throat> that, was, that was some years ago you had that chat with Cliff Drysdale, David, but uh, yeah. yeah, talk about time. 2012. Um, and uh, yeah, 2012 and, and it, was, uh, it was something I was fascinated in at the time because I knew so little of the story and I'm well I'm very happy that we're able to now properly listen to that in the context of doing this show overall because and I think I mean I've always liked him as a commentator but I I knew so little of him as a tennis player he had a fantastic record it turns out against Rod Laver he used to beat Rod Laver he he told me that it just his lefted game played perfectly into his strengths but that he had I, I still can't get over how brave it is to do what they did. We're, we're just about to have Wimbledon again now, having not had it for a year, for very different reasons. But it's it's a, a year of Wimbledon that a tennis player doesn't get to have. And they don't get that many of them. It's a, it's a huge thing to do. Mm. Yeah, I- Absolutely, absolutely, and and we'll talk more about that when we when we come on to talk about the actual tournament, which we will do in just a moment. But where are the women? You, <laughs> I might hear you cry. Um, it's certainly what was ringing loud in in my ears throughout all the sort of early research uh, we did on all of this, because 
um, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, had been formed the week before this Wimbledon um, by Billie Jean King and the original nine and and various other uh, female tennis players at the time. Um, they had formed it the week before and Billie Jean King had become its president. Um, so why weren't the women involved in the boycott and were they asked to be involved in the boycott i hear you cry and here is billy jean king herself with the answer i went to the men and asked if they'd like us to join them you know because the atp had just started um in in 72 we had just formed the wta four days before the tournament but i knew that was going to happen i was hoping anyway and I went to Arthur and I went to a few players, actually. I went to probably three or four. I said, would you be interested in us going with you? So, because it'll make it much more powerful statement. And they go, no, please. We don't want the women, nothing to do with you. And I said, I remember saying to Arthur, well, you just made us the stars of the tournament then. Thank you. And then we were in the lobby at the Gloucester when we're trying to start the WTA. I, and the media was just frantic. They were all sitting around waiting for us to be finished with this meeting. And they kept saying, oh, you're going to go and have this meeting, whether you're going to boycott or not, right? And I said, no, we're going to we're going to try to start an association. And they didn't care. They only cared about the boycott, which I knew would happen. And I said, the men don't want us. They don't want us to join them. I We'd be very happy to at least explore that if they want us. And uh, they had no, oh, if you look at the quotes back then, it's pretty scary. They thought we should all quit and go back home and take care of our husbands. And then, of course, some of us didn't have husbands and some of us were the breadwinner. So it's just really, it's really old fashioned then. It's really shocking, actually, thinking back. But anyway, we came out of the WTA meeting and I'm all excited because now we have a WTA and they were like, oh, you didn't talk about the boycott? I said, no, but we have an association. Do you understand? We finally have one voice. We brought our, our two tours together. We had two tours for two years. I said, do you understand? That is huge. They weren't too interested. Oh, sigh. <laughs> um, look, we could do a podcast about, about that clip alone, I think. But uh, our next Wimbledon Relived uh, will be about the journey to equal prize money and uh, and equality and <laughs> I will dwell on such matters more in that podcast but that that clip is truly truly extraordinary i mean obviously obviously we all knew that that things were old fashioned then and there was open sexism just completely ingrained in the structure of the sport at, but still still for that to be the reaction um yeah i find it i found it extraordinary when billy jean yeah, told us that it's so shocking in 2021 to hear that when we did that interview with her that stopped me in my tracks i you know i i, I couldn't i i don't know why but i had not well maybe i'm maybe i'm the sexist as well i had not really th- thought about the 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 role of the women in this particular storyline you know and then to because i didn't know that she had made that that suggestion to them and to find out that it had just been dismissed out of hand i couldn't believe it really um sounds like she could believe it and yet the the disappointment in her voice and the and the exasperation 
is is really telling. Something I love doing for these Tennis Relive shows is going into the New York Times archive or going into the Sports Illustrated vault. But I always do it with a bit of trepidation because exactly as Billie Jean King says there, some of the quotes from that time about women's tennis are horrifying. And, and those are those are coming from greats of the game as well, which I think makes it even worse. You know, it's bad enough a writer saying something negative about women's tennis, but to hear from the top male players how they felt about the women is is really tough to read now. I, I, I can't imagine what it was like for Billie Jean King at the time and all those women. And people we think of as decent, decent mm-hmm. players, like T- decent people. Totally. You know, this isn't just Nastasi yeah, mouthing no, off. It, it's very hard to reconcile. It's yeah. very hard. And look, Billie Jean King was right. They were the stars of that tournament. Uh, a lot of the write-ups of the men's event you know, it was unique, but they describe it as pretty dreary, really, in terms of the quality of tennis. Whereas in the women, you had kind of at the time, their big four all got to the semifinals. Chris Everett, Billie Jean King, Margaret Court and Yvonne Goolagong. And um, there's a piece in Sports Illustrated which says this will be remembered as the Wimbledon in which Billie Jean King helped form a union of her own, the WTA, and became its president. Then... After she'd won her fifth singles title, her ninth doubles title with Rosie Casals, and her third mixed doubles title with Owen Davidson for her second triple crown at Wimbledon, she went back to eating her beloved ice cream, vanilla, which somehow does not seem quite right for her. Um, apparently earlier in the year she'd, she'd eaten some ice cream in Miami and then vowed that she wouldn't touch it again until, until <laughs> after Wimbledon. <laughs> A lot of the... A lot of the write-ups, sort of retrospective write-ups about this boycott and whether it was deemed a success, both at the time and uh, and in hindsight, cite the fact that it was the second most attended Wimbledon at the time, that attendances barely dipped at all. And that's, in a lot of what I've read, cited as evidence that the boycott wasn't that effective and actually Wimbledon was a lot bigger than the players um uh, but actually hang on a second isn't that evidence that people wanted to come and watch the women um and Billie Jean King and the big four as you describe um but of course it wouldn't have been seen as that at the time because everything I mean still is to a lesser extent but everything would have been viewed through a horrendously sexist lens um, so what stars did we have in the men's tournament? Well, Stan Smith, the defending champion, was originally the top seed and Elena Stasi, the second seed. Now, Elena Stasi did not boycott. Um, it Rumours were at the time that his Romanian federation wouldn't allow him to boycott and wouldn't allow him to be a member of the ATP. So Nastasi was bumped up to top seed. John Newcomb would have been third seed, Arthur Ashe, Kem Rosewall, Tom Ocker, Roy Emerson, all people that weren't there. Alex Metrovelli would have been 13th seed. He was bumped up to number four. Jan Kodesh would have been 15th seed. He was bumped up to number two. Uh, and Roger Taylor would have been 16th seed and he was bumped up to number three. Um, 
So those were your top four seeds. Ilina Stasi, Jan Kodesh, Roger Taylor and Alex Metrovelli. Um, as you heard Richard Evans describe, there were so many withdrawals that they had to redo the draw. And there were 49 lucky losers in the draw that year. We went through and counted. 78 in total, if you count qualifiers yeah. as well. I mean, and, and I looked at the women's draw for a comparison and there were eight qualifiers and one lucky loser. <laughs> <laughs> truly the luckiest of losers there's a great line from Bud Collins that he said I've beaten players in this draw <laughs> I mean there really were some you know we want we wanted to speak to a couple of the lucky losers and we were going through sort of googling names and we're talking a lot of people that don't have a Wikipedia page and don't have any search results <laughs> when you put their names into Google I'm sure they were st- Splendid tennis players. I mean, you'd have to be to even be in the qualifying draw, obviously. Um, yeah, but we're not we're not talking about you know people just on the brink of of main draw Wimbledon tennis. We're talking about people that would have been walking around wide eyed at being in a Wimbledon draw. I spoke to one of them, in fact, Phil Siviter. Um, who was a British player, lost in qualifying, um, was in that clamour to sign up as a lucky loser. And yeah, he describes it, he, he describes it as a wonderful dinner party story. You know, the year he got to play Wimbledon, um, he played an Austrian player and, and lost in, lost in five sets. Um, but, you know, had a fantastic experience. Um, got to play on court number seven. Um, the prize money was a hundred pounds for lo- losing in the first round. Um, and his his biggest memory of it was um, seeing Bjorn Borg in the locker room. Um, and Bjorn Borg ended up being one of the stories of that tournament because the absence of a lot of the the top names enabled a seventeen year old Borg um, to break through and have a run and sort of announce himself onto the world stage and similar for Jimmy Connors as well. Um, so, he, yeah, Phil Siviter told me a, a lovely sort of wistful story about seeing Bjorn Borg in the locker room and the fact that there were there were pigeonholes in the locker room for fan fans' good luck messages that had been sent in. Um, and most had, you know, one or two stuffed in. Uh, and Bjorn Borg had to be assigned additional supplementary pigeonholes. <laughs> and this was at a time when nobody knew who Bjorn Borg was. You know, he'd sort of come from nowhere and all of a sudden he was <laughs> getting all of the fan mail. Um, so, yeah, it was, that was just really interesting sort of colour to, to the whole experience that there were so many players in that sort of situation just thrust thrust into a home Grand Slam because most of them were British, weren't they? Um, and with this incredible opportunity and, and moment, you had amateurs, um, American college players. In fact, Nastasi ended up losing in the fourth round to an American college player called Sandy Mayer. Um, now, Nastasi claimed he had been ordered personally by his president, Ceausescu, to, to play the tournament, to not boycott. And then after he lost, 
He said he had received orders to tank. Now, no one believed either story at the time. I've no idea what the truth is. But both of those things sound plausible to me. I don't know. No one wants to go down this speculation road with me. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> right. But the then. thing is, it's with with him. He was he's so hard to know what, what mm. to think about because he was always playing the fool and he was always controversial and some of it was hilarious and brilliant and some of it was absolutely objectionable. Um, and uh, you, you don't know what to believe with him. No. But you do know what to believe with Ceausescu and um, it seems plausible (laughs) that Ceausescu uh, would have been uh, pulling some Machiavellian strings in the background. So what about Jan Kodesh then? He he was not a nobody. We're not talking about some, some college kid that got the opportunity of his life and went on a fairy tale dream run to the final. He was absolutely not nobody. And I think that's a misconception. Mm. I think if your average sports fan knows about the Wimbledon boycott, they think a nobody won it that year. Mm-hmm. As you said, Jan Kodesh was already a two-time French Open champion. He, he, he was a clay quarter, really. But, it, but it, it really sounds like he'd actually started to make some real progress on grass in... In 1972, he'd reached the Wimbledon semi-final, and before that, even in 1971, he'd reached the U.S. Open final on grass. He'd beaten John Newcomb in the first round. He was unseeded and beat Newcomb. He also beat Arthur Ashe that tournament, and ended up losing to Stan Smith in the final. So, absolutely, he was he was competent, very very competent on grass, and took advantage of of his draw. Mm, he. Um... He wasn't allowed to be a member of the ATP like like many members of uh, of Eastern Bloc countries, but he did go on record as saying he didn't believe the boycott was justified. He said, I was not a member of the ATP. Pillage was suspended by the ITF. The ATP was going against the ITF. I was not okay with the pillage suspension. The problem was that the Yugoslav Tennis Federation made the suspension, but Wimbledon was organised by the All England Club. They had nothing to do with pillage in this case. So I think the ATP's decision to boycott was not right. Um, now, there's a, there's obviously a lot of nuance in that argument in terms of who's making what decision and who has what power. But the impression I get from from people talking about the boycott and the formation of the ATP and the situation in general, it was basically establishment versus non-establishment, breaking up the power as as a unit rather than making distinctions between who was making what decision. The fact is that they felt like the establishment were working against the players and Wimbledon, while they didn't make that individual decision in relation to Nicky Pillich, were very much part of that self-sustaining establishment. Um, but interesting interesting that he went on the record explaining that. Um, so his progress through the draw, he had a couple of close battles with with Indian players. Um, Mukherjee, do you know that player, David? Do you know, I, 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 I think I looked that player up when we 
went to try to find some of the players in the draw, you know, in terms of looking for players. And and that's that's one of the interesting things. I mean, you're quite right. A lot of the players that you find, there's there's really nothing to find. And then you'll find others where they've got this, they've got an academy or they're mm. running a tennis club. There's a tennis player who's running a club in, in, in India. I can't remember that whether that was him or not. But, you know, there's... Everybody's got some sort of story, um, but but yeah, they're, there's, they're not household names as I would know them anyway. He beat Vijay and Rachaj in the quarterfinals, and then he comes up against Roger Taylor in the semifinals, who of course is Britain's top player, um, chose not to boycott. This was his big chance. You heard Richard Evans describe the pickle, the mm. pickle that he was in with his father being a diehard diehard unionist um so roger taylor does play um and he takes that semi-final into the fifth set there's a rain delay at four five in that set and when they come back kodesh doesn't lose another game um roger taylor hit 20 double faults in that match and on the advice of yaroslav drobny the 1954 wimbledon champion once they came back after the rain delay um Kodesh was targeting the Roger Taylor backhand and that is what made the decisive difference. So then he heads into a final where he's up against Alex Metrovelli, who would have been the 13th seed but has been bumped up to fourth seed. So you had the second seed against the fourth seed in the final. Um. And Kodesh trailed their head-to-head 5-1 and one, um, and had lost to Metrovelli at Wimbledon three years previously in five sets. But Kodesh had the greater experience. It was his fourth major final, Metrovelli's first. Kodesh had won Grand Slams at the French Open by this point. Kodesh remembers, I knew his game and he knew mine. I was afraid of him because he was better than everybody thought he was, an all-round player who could make passing shots, drop shots and lobs. What I was counting on was that because I had played three major finals and he had played none, he might be nervous from the beginning. And that is exactly what happened. He started badly. He was double faulting and missing returns and passing shots. My tactics were not to miss a lot and just keep the ball in the court without trying something special. I also served into his body a lot. David, you've uh, you've watched some of this final. Yeah, I watched some of it this morning. There's actually some really high quality footage uh, on YouTube that uh, that I found. And um, first of all, I, I thought it's quite interesting that there's a Sports Illustrated writer that Matt's found saying that the the quality of the final was dreary. I mean, I th- I think there's some good shot making that I'm looking at um, in 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 the match, but. What really strikes me most of all is when Kodesh is serving for the match and he looks like he's hyperventilating to me. He <laughs> looks like he's just desperately trying to control his breathing. He's got a cracking moustache, by the way. Uh, and anyway, he, he, he seals it on match point, serves and volleys, wins the point, and then stops right next to the net and then just hurdles it from a standing position in, in just total joy and then goes up to i always think this is a bit awkward you've hurdled the net and then you've got to greet the bloke you've just beaten and he goes up to metrovelli and he puts his arm around metrovelli's neck 
as and you know you've got one bloke who's absolutely joyful and the other one's gutted and and you get the sense that Mitrovic's thinking we just get off because <laughs> this isn't so great for me um but anyway he was he was certainly uh, respectful in in defeat and then Curtis just goes and sits next to to his chair on the floor as and really tr- trying to take it all in it seemed to me um and and I think his answer about the boycott and and I've got the sense from Roger Taylor these people they're having to wrestle with it in their own mind as well they know this is a thing and and that they've decided to play and they've got good reasons in their own mind for it but I doubt it's cut and dried in many cases very interesting that you say he was hyperventilating at the end I think that very much tallies with some quotes I've read from him that he was really putting pressure on himself to win this match he I mean he knew what an opportunity this was he said I had to win that match you know, I think for his image, it was important. He wanted to be seen as much more than just a clay quarter. And he knew that it was a hell of a chance. He compares it to Newcomb playing, now, Wilhelm Bungert in the 1967 final or Rod Laver playing Marty Mulligan in 1962. He says, sometimes you play these players and you have to take advantage of those opportunities, even though he had that 5-1 head-to-head deficit with Metrovelli, he he still fancied himself as the favourite, I think, in that match. And I guess that, that explains why he was so under pressure at the end of it, trying to finish it off. Um, and then actually, after Wimbledon, he he backed it up. He reached the US Open final in 1973 as well, his, his fifth major final. And he thinks, he thinks that was his chance to be world number one, doesn't he? Yeah, he thinks if he'd if he'd won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, he would have been ranked number one, and he would have deserved it. Uh, and, mm. he, and he and he never got there. Yeah, he he's a really interesting one, Jan Kodesh. We saw him in uh, Barbora Krajikova's box, didn't we, throughout the French Open, which I found really interesting, and it made me realise how little we see of him and how little I knew about him, other than he was the Wimbledon winner in the boycott year. Um, obviously. Billie Jean King knows plenty about him, danced with him at the Wimbledon Ball that year. Here is Billie Jean talking about Jan Kodesh and also Stan Smith, um, who we heard her saying was um, was one of the biggest hit by uh, by boycotting in 1973 as the defending champion. Oh, yeah. Well, he was ecstatic. I mean, um, he said... Thank, thank you to the boycott. He said, do you think... Do you really think I'd be, you know, dancing with you? You know, if... If everybody had been in the tournament, he said, what an unbelievable opportunity for me, for my country. Um, I think it was still Czechoslovakia then. Um, so uh, it was wonderful. And I always liked Jan anyway. He's, he was always been very wonderful and nice and cared about tennis, cared about the younger players. So I always, I, I loved him a lot. So I was very happy for him. But he was great. He was so ecstatic. He knew. He understood it was an opportunity. We're not presented opportunities that often, and he took advantage of it. I'll tell you who took the real hit was Stan Smith because he won in 72. He's defending champion, and he boycotted Wimbledon. That was very uh, courageous, I thought. I always appreciate Stan for that. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So was the boycott a success? Now, this is one of the... the, the very pertinent questions that John and Leah are guest editors for, for this this show and friends of the pod put to us i mean they've they've informed lots of the um directions we've taken with this and questions we've asked our various contributors so many thanks to john and leah but it's the big question isn't it where would tennis be now were it not for the the boycott did it forever change the direction of the sport we've heard richard evans describe how badly it was received at the time in the british press i've told you about how large the attendance was, 300,712 people, the second highest in tournament history. Um, but yeah, the players did not win the battle of, of public perception, but it's widely perceived that the boycott was successful. They ultimately, the players did gain their freedom and control. Um, it's perceived as the moment tennis grew up, players were no longer dictated to by their national federations. They could go anywhere and play where they wanted. Once it was obvious to the amateur officials that the players were willing to give up their ultimate dream, the chance to play Wimbledon, for the sake of another union member, the jig was up. And from then on, the players would have the power. Um, months later, the ranking system was established um, and this from, from Frank Keating, who we, we talked about earlier. By the time Borg retired at the age of 25 in 1981, the Wimbledon champion was pocketing a handsome, or well, the Wimbledon men's champion, this probably should be, a handsome £21,600. Only 10 years earlier, 
The winner's prize is, 90, is 1971 Gentleman Singles winner was almost seven times less, a paltry £3,750. What came between those two gents and players' eras to cause such an astonishing inflation? It was the 1973 boycott. And it's probably for that reason that when tennis reaches boiling points and you could very much argue that we're we're at one at the moment that we've been simmering for a while a boycott suddenly is thrust into the conversation as a a very possible scenario possible lever that can be pulled by by factions in tennis wanting to to gain power and again this is something david that you asked cliff drysdale about in 2012 in relation to rumours of a boycott that was swirling then. Now, it was coming to a head then, led by Andy Roddick, um, in relation particularly to Super Saturday at the US Open. The players wanted to to pull their weight um, to to get rid of Super Saturday, which was seen as, you know, while a fantastic thing for US telly, the women's final and the two men's semifinals being played on one day, and then the men having to come back and play their final the next day. Um, for the players, it was a ludicrous situation. So this was something you asked Cliff Drysdale about back then in 2012. I just think that the whole atmosphere um, of the politics of tennis has improved a lot. Uh, I think that uh, the, uh, the Grand Slam tournaments really understand the game and the promotion and they, they learn from each other I guess so um, I think that, the, that they realise that there's certain things that probably are unfair and need to be changed so there's talk already about US Open changing its, the date of its final to accommodate the players because they're right, I mean everybody has said it for years, it's not like this is an argument that hasn't been made before uh, to try to play a semi-final five set semi-final and then the next day play the final is very unfair very unfair. So, I mean, if you if you were in their position, would you would you believe, therefore, that that it is possible for them to to lobby and discuss and and probably get what they want without ever needing to take any drastic form of action like like a boycott? I, you know, I don't think that's on the cards. I think you talk about it. Um, I, the, the threat because of what we did back in the early seventies, I suppose, is there. Um, I just don't. I don't think it's going to happen because I think there are clearer heads now. Really, the ITF and Wimbledon in that year was just—they uh, were still sort of steeped in the past. You know, it hadn't. The game hadn't opened up. It was just there was the first, you know, like the third or fourth year of opening up. So they really didn't have any history of understanding what real professional tennis was about. They were just learning. That's different now, and I, I think they know that the players have got a point. And, uh, and I think they would like to accommodate them. It's not in the interest of the Grand Slams uh, to aggravate the players. And if the players have got a legitimate point, then I think they're going to bow to it. That was nine years ago, that chat. And uh, while Cliff Drysdale thought the players were right, and again, history has pl- proven the players to be right. Looking back, it's, it's hard to believe that they used to play that schedule over the final weekend of the US Open. He didn't think there would be a boycott. He didn't think a boycott was the right thing. And he thought that because he thought everybody had clearer heads. I found that an interesting uh, an interesting turn of phrase. 
Now, there were rumours last year, weren't there, that there would be a US Open boycott. They never materialised, whether that's because something changed or because those rumours were just not accurate in the first place. I don't know, but with all the PTPA stuff that rumbled at the Western and Southern Open, the eventual formation, those rumours were swirling. Do you think there could be a boycott in modern tennis? Do you think it's it's something that players looking for extra power and influence, members of the PTPA, could look at 1973 and think, hey, that worked, why don't we try this? Or at least threaten to try this? Hmm. I, I think it's something they have to have in their pocket as a possibility, otherwise they have no teeth at all. Um, if If the establishment if the tournaments if the atp if the grand slams are prepared to stare them down and say no we're not doing what you want and they're not prepared to ever boycott then they'll never get anywhere that that that, that's ultimately the the bargaining position that they're in that said in 2012 uh, and shortly after, as Cliff rightly said, they didn't need to boycott in, in order to get what they wanted. And, the, and if you look at the prize money, it has risen dramatically in the early stages of Grand Sams, for instance, in, in the time since then. Uh, so they have made progress. I think what's interesting at the moment, and the PTPA, Professional Tennis Players Association, has now organised itself in a much more official way in terms of having a management board and, a, and an advisory board and professional people behind it rather than just um big name players with with a lot a lot to say they've got a twitter um, account they've got a twitter account and they're making noise and making their their position more more clear i still think there's a long long way to go um but it's something clearly that isn't going to go away and the atp have have seen fit to reply to it overnight, in fact, as we, we talk to you right now, and to, to establish its position that there's a clear overlap between the two and we're the ones in charge of the tour, we're the ones who've given professional tennis players their seat at the table in all negotiations and we've got a blueprint for the future and and and, and this shouldn't be necessary is what they're basically saying. Well... Clearly, that's not completely working. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a PTPA bubbling up and building. You just wouldn't have that if they were completely satisfied. So I would imagine that the the likelihood is that they will find a way to compromise eventually and and improve conditions and give some of what these players are asking for. Otherwise, it's going to escalate. Good of them all to make our Tennis Relived boycott episode that extra bit relevant, though. <laughs> yes, appreciate that. <laughs> um, what do you think, Matt? Gosh, the truth is I really don't know, which is why I'm interested to hear David speak on it there. I mean, as an outsider, I just find it so hard to measure the temperature of of the political activity in tennis there seem to be these peaks and troughs um always seems to be a really hot topic around the u.s open time or the, or the australian open where they apply the meetings and they all gather together and then it simmers down a bit so look i i really don't know um the atp have certainly come out against it very strongly once again their latest statement overnight saying that further fragmentation is 
the biggest threat to tennis growth, I think was the line in the in their statement last night. Personally, I'm pleased that the, that the PTPA is building a proper structure at last. I felt like they probably should have had more of this in place when they launched. I think that would have sent a much stronger statement. It would have got a lot more people on its side. I think actually a lot of people agree that the players have got a, a very strong case here. Uh, it's just the way they've gone about it has been uh, has been the problem. Um, so, yeah, I th- I'm actually quite encouraged that by the steps the PTPA is taking. I just wish they'd done it earlier. Um, but, yeah, let's see. Mm. Mm. Well, they've got a logo and a Twitter account. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they mean I, business. I also, I also think the, the, the authorities that we're talking about it sounds like it's just on a different scale. You heard the way Richard Evans described the superior nature of the tone of those of the International Lawn Tennis Associate Federation at the time, and they just wanted players to get back in their box. And that's not the tone you get now by comparison. It's not. Um, so, I mean, I mean, the fact that the ATP have, have responded uh, to this so quickly and and always even at the formation of the PTPA when it wasn't even clear what that meant they were they were pretty swift internally and externally to address the situation it shows a certain level of seriousness with which they're taking it um which i find interesting they could just sort of swat it away and go well this is irrelevant this you know these silly little players thinking they can challenge us that's definitely not their attitude um which which is interesting in itself. Anyone looking to find the PTPA on Twitter, by the way, need to know that at PTPA has already been taken on Twitter by uh, parent tested, parent approved. <laughs> so they are at PTPA players. <laughs> oh, I would have gone PTPA tennis, but that's just me. <laughs> Maybe that's taken by parent tested, parent approved. Proved tennis. <laughs> um, what a treat it has been to go back to 1973, uh, the the year of the law, the law, the Springsteen, and the boycott. <laughs> that's a, that's what it's known as now, is it? Um, that's a film. <laughs> yeah, it really has been a treat. Thank you so much to John and Leah uh, for your contributions to this episode. It wouldn't have been the same without them. We really appreciate the time, effort and diligence that our guest editors are putting into to these shows. It's really, it's quite touching, really. Um, and it's our pleasure to bring it to life with the not inconsiderable help of Billie Jean King, Richard Evans and Cliff, Cliff Drysdale, um, who have absolutely made this episode what it is. Chris Albert Lee is our executive producer, as always. We have our mascots. Uh, Billie Jean's ears have pricked up many a time during this episode because I keep saying her name, even though it's not her name, but she she doesn't quite understand that. Um We've got Rogue, Scousel, Mousel and Zeus. And not a mention of predictions in this episode too. None of us have let any of them down. What a treat. Uh, David, Matt, thank you so much for your contributions and your research in particular, Matt. Um, Yeah, glorious as always. We'll be back with one more Wimbledon Relived episode before the championships begin. And then 
you're getting 14 daily Wimbledon podcasts. We think it could be the best, most exciting, most significant Wimbledon in our histories. And I know it's our job to big up the tournaments and big up the podcast, but we really do think that, don't we? Yeah, Catherine, mm. I'm liking this hype stuff. <laughs> mm. Brilliant. We've got 19, 20, 20, and the one on 19 is going for the calendar slam, possibly the calendar golden slam. We've got Serena on 23. It's just, it's all too much. So one more relived, one Wimbledon preview, and then daily Wimbledon podcast. Join us for all of it. We'll speak to you soon. 